This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell. Joining me today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar, also artistic administrator and principal second violin, Merwin Sue, and we also have the Toledo Symphony's new music director, Alain Trudel, with us today. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. Glad to have you back, by the way, uh, Elaine. Uh, congratulations on the Mozart concerts. Last time we spoke with you on this podcast, you and Francis were getting ready to take on those piano concertos. How, how did everything go? Oh, very well, actually. Now, we had a, a very nice afternoon. I think it's a, it's a great thing to do this Mozart in the afternoon program. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, for me, it was uh, I've never done the sixth. So I was very surprised how uh, actually mature music it was. It was very, very nice music. Yeah, and Francis, of course, was wonderful. Yeah. And I must say the woodwinds of the orchestra did a fantastic (laughs) job out of that serenade. No, it's not easy, right, right. to to play in the middle of uh, accompanying concertos. Oh, all of a sudden you're in front of the stage. You're you're right uh, there in the center. I remember the string-free serenade. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we want to talk about a concert that is coming up. It's a week from this weekend, October 27th and 28th. It's at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle. This concert will see the premiere of a brand spanking new piece of music, the Cello Concerto by Lowell Lieberman, which is a co-commission of the Toledo Symphony. There's some other great music on there as well, but the the whole theme of the podcast today is new music, right, and the creation of new music. And this particular piece, we're going to be speaking with Lowell Lieberman. In fact, he's going to be calling in in about 15 minutes, so we'll get his take and hear all about the cello concerto. I also have a fun little quiz for you guys that is inspired by this as well. But first, let's just talk about new music to begin with. Now, all three of you are involved in programming, right? And you all have your finger on the pulse of, you know, what the audience wants to hear and perhaps what the audience should hear and what the audience doesn't know they want to hear yet, mm-hmm. right? These are questions that are before you all the time. Maybe we'll start with you, Elaine, because you can you can talk from three different points of view. Uh, you're, you're a performer as a trombonist. You are a conductor, obviously, and you're also a composer, which I don't know that everybody knows that. <laughs> well, it's uh, maybe it's not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, seriously. Um, well, actually, you know, we are. Uh, when you say, uh, you know, you musicians are also called uh, interprets. You know, we interpret the music. We mm-hmm. so the this the the side of interpretation that's kind of translation is kind of important in that because what we do as musicians is that we take the music that's written on a piece of paper. Like, you know, it goes from the emotion and also, you know, everything that the composer have inside of them. They have to find a code to write it, to transmit it to somebody else, to to share it. So they write it. So it goes from them to this code. Then as a conductor, as a musician, you have to, again, take the code, like uh, and be take the code and get in, I don't know, how could I say, inside of you can you know get get that music get, get yeah. the intention and then translate it to the people who actually don't read music people in the audience most of the people there the musician right it's like you digest it and then and then you yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. 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 in french we say it has to be like you cannot say impressed on you but it really has to be a part of you yeah but Z- zach is i think zach uh, didn't think that was the best choice of words <laughs> <laughs> to no. digest it it becomes a part of you and then you yes but, We're not going to go there today, right? Here, no. by the way, this reminds me. I have a, I have a, a little soundboard here. 
There we go. Oh, what a beautiful You remember dome. that? <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting something a little more uh, uh, gastrointestinal after that discussion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <Hey. Yeah. laughs> this is the first time I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well done, gentlemen. Okay. okay so, anyway, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no problem. So... Uh, as I was saying, is that we have to translate what the composer means and try to understand it. Of course, with with the, like a living composer, it's easy because we can chat and we can talk with them and see their yeah. intention. But even like with Beethoven, with Mozart, uh, you have to, it's not a guess because you have to go back in history and study. And sometimes you have, you know, letters that are written by those composers and you have uh, uh, practice, uh, you know, the, the the way that people used to practice this music and you can mix that. But all of this to come to this very simple point is that if there's no music written, there's no nothing to play. Right. Yeah. If there's right. nothing to play, there's no concert. So sometimes we play music today and we say, oh, well, I don't know about that modern music. Well, you know, Mozart was modern at some point and Beethoven was modern, you know? So oh, yeah. There, there's, of course, you know, many different uh, school because it's like it used to be one road and then there was a fork and then another fork and then we have many different ways of, of you know, music and influences from other music, from jazz, from pop, from just folk music. Before it was just folk music. Now there's so many different kinds of folk music that it's influencing the, the classical music. But, uh, and, and that's actually a very good thing. It's it's just that we have to keep in mind that the composers we hear today will be the standard standards of tomorrow. Yeah, Zach, can you talk to it a little bit from the role of the of an administrator and uh, the TSO in particular in this commissioning project? Sure. So let me just back up for one second because I love this concept of new music because. Well, you kind of nailed it in the introduction. There, there's the music that the audience wants to hear. There's the music that the musicians want to play. And then there's this other category that would probably fall into Donald Rumsfeld's uh, unknown unknowns that uh, we don't know it. We don't know what it's going to sound like, and we don't know that we want to hear it. But then mm -hmm. it's it's gratifying when we give that opportunity. And if you talk to a lot of audience members, they might presume incorrectly that new music sounds like you loaded up the kitchen sink and threw it down metal staircase, because that's this idea of modern music. But it's it's not the case. There's so much that's so lyrical, so beautiful. Yeah. And when we bring new music to our audiences, particularly yeah. those who come to our classics concerts at the Peristyle, the reaction is usually very favorable. One of the most successful concerts we had last season, for example, was the program that had Michael Doherty's organ concerto, yeah. which I don't know that anybody had heard unless they just purchased Paul Jacobs' new CD. Or uh, or unless they listened to my program, because I played it a couple of times <laughs> before the concert. The week of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when it comes to new music, I love to surprise the audience with how much they can enjoy new music. And and from a, a programming perspective, it's really important to keep things fresh and keep people on their seats to be interpreting in real time. And I think that's what Elaine mm. was just talking about. So um, when we look at our programming for this current season, uh, new commissions was something that I, I wanted to explore. The Toledo Symphony used to do a lot more with new commissions. And rather famously, we commissioned a concerto for orchestra from Lowell Lieberman mm -hmm. about 15 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where it ended. That was, you know, the last really big piece that we had commissioned. So in a way, this is kind of coming full circle back to Lowell Lieberman and picking up where we left off 15 years ago. Yeah. You want to add to that, Merwin? I mean, you've had your hand in a lot of, not just with TSO, but with um, programs 
programming and coming up with interesting programs. And what are the challenges for somebody who is trying to please an audience yet keep it fresh and, and keep the, the repertoire moving? Well, I think that even in the most traditional concert format, you need to create a blend between something that's original and something that's familiar. Mm -hmm. And that the ratio of that can change, but there must always be something that's familiar and comforting and something that's original and challenging. And I've always felt that when one element is overly dominant, then you get a, an overly safe program. Mm. But if there's a program that doesn't have something familiar to hang on to, then an audience sometimes feels maybe that they're a little bit at sea without a life jacket or something like that. So one of the wonderful things about programming something by Lowell Lieberman is that throughout his works, there is always a sense of a, f a dependence on, not a dependence on, but a, a veneration of tradition. And yeah. so you have this familiarity with the classical tradition that really helps audiences kind of moor themselves. They feel that they, it's like, oh, I might not know this particular work, but I, I have the sense of the traditions that it comes from. And therefore, there's a familiarity element that allows me to be more open to the originality and the uniqueness that's throughout so many of his pieces. Well, that's a great segue into our little quiz for this morning. We have an audio quiz which is built around Lowell Lieberman and the fact that uh, he tends to quote other composers. He doesn't, he doesn't do this often, but it happens occasionally in his pieces where you'll be hearing, you know, very modern yet accessible music going and all of a sudden out pops this very familiar tune and you're like, <laughs> I know what that is. It, it's an interesting um, hallmark of his music. So what I have done is we've got four rounds here. Each round has three different pieces of music. One of them is Lieberman quoting somebody else and the other two are other composers quoting somebody else. So it's, it's, I don't expect you to name everything. You can probably <laughs> name the pieces that are being quoted. Um, I don't necessarily expect you to be able to find the Lieberman as it were, but this is just kind of a fun way to acquaint ourselves with some of the music that he's done. So here's our first three examples. Okay, not quite Beethoven. <laughs> also, not quite Beethoven. So three examples. Anybody have any one of well, I know this one. You know, Merwin? The Lieberman is the second one. Yeah. The, yeah. the second one, Piccolo yeah. Concerto. Yeah. Yeah. The first one was Michael Tippett's Symphony Number no. 3, which uh -huh. after an yeah. hour or two of of lots of atonality, all of a sudden you have, you know, the fourth movement of Beethoven Ninth Symphony. <laughs> and the last piece is by a composer named Carter Pan. It's called Slalom. For some oh. reason, he begins with that Ninth Symphony timpani riff. Right. That's awful. Wow. We've played slow. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, we one point goes it. to we one point goes to Merwin. <laughs> Here's our uh, second round. Mm -hmm. 
second example. get this one. <laughs> okay. Well, first, you know what the last one was, yeah. right? That was the turtles or tortoises from... Uh, Carnival of the Animals, which was really the the can-can slowed down, right? And the second one was the can-can being quoted by a composer. The first one was uh, uh, Mighty Fortress is our Mm -hmm. guy, Martin Luther. So which of of those two do you think was the the Lieberman? Luther or Offenbach? Quote. You you have a 50-50 chance. Merwin, you're already (laughs) a step ahead. You, You have nothing to lose. Just the, take a, the second one sounds so much like deranged Shostakovich that it, it was Shostakovich. Really so I yeah. didn't. So the yeah. first one must have been the Lieberman. First one was yeah. Lieberman. Yeah. That, that was actually his variations on a theme of Mozart, the orchestral yeah. version. Mm-hmm. But we heard mm. in there that little quote. There are a few different quotes that work their way into that piece. Yeah. Uh, the second one was Shostakovich from his film score to uh, the New Babylon. Yeah, he yeah. quotes uh, that can uh, can in there. Okay, well Merwin is uh, two for two. <clears throat> Here's our next round. Second example. That was quoting Schubert, by the way. Quoting T for two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not what you were expecting. No. Not at all. Wow. It's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> We had a conversation about this when we talked about the Mozart concertos, that that Coronation Coronation. concerto leaves out about 40% of the left hand. Mm -hmm. Well, a composer named Timo Andres filled it in and and called it the recomposed Coronation concerto. So that's... You guys should do that sometime. That'd be be a fun addition to, you know... When when you do the... uh, the what is it 60 keys per <laughs> piano <laughs> we, we, we festival some, of 88 which has not been yeah, revised to 60 yeah. yeah festival of somewhere between 60 and 88 <laughs> we'll we, we use some fuzzy math in there uh, the first piece was uh, Schubert 
and it was uh, the military march. Mm-hmm. So somebody's paraphrase of yeah. that. And the second one was T for two, if you remember. So again, down to a 50-50 chance here. Merwin, you want to give it a shot? I go for the hat trick. Go for the hat trick. <laughs> Hockey season has started. Um, <laughs> the second one sounded more like Lieberman to That's me. That's right. That was his sonata for two pianos. Oh, cool. The first one was the original version of Stravinsky's Circus Polka. Oh, for yeah. the piano, where he I, uses the uh, military march. I would not have recognized this Stravinsky. Mm. Here's our last round. Oh, there's the phone. Maybe we should ask Lowell if he can tell us which one <laughs> yeah, of these. Good idea. <laughs> Let's hold on. Hello, this is Brad. <laughs> wow. Hi there. Um, we're expecting your call. If you can hang on a second, I'm going to patch you through our board so we can all talk. Are you there? I can hear you. Oh, nice. Perfect. Okay, great. We were right in the middle of playing an, an audio uh, quiz, actually, called Find the Lieberman, where I was uh, I was playing three different pieces of music by different composers where <laughs> where they quote other composers, uh-huh. and yours was one of them, and everybody had to guess which one was, was yours. Oh, we were just on the fourth round, actually. That's that's cute. <laughs> L- Lowell, this is Zach. Would you like to participate? Maybe you can tell us which one it is. Um, I, uh, I might not be able to. <laughs> that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? That'd be great. Well, we were in the middle of the fourth round, so this is. I'll just try it for fun and see if you can. Actually, actually, I was once in the car with Ned Roram, and they were playing his first symphony, and he didn't know what piece it was. <laughs> I'm serious? Did he like it? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I hope he enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. This is. I'm going to pull this down a little bit here. So there are three pieces, and you have to guess which one is by you. <laughs> Okay. Mm-hmm. Or you can tell us, you know, if it's not by you. See if this one sounds familiar at all. Well, that's definitely not by me, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. It's modeled after um, Mozart Piano Concerto. Nitky or something? No. It's a good guess. It's um, Flute Concerto by Kevin Putz, actually. Oh, oh yeah. okay. Now, here's one. See if this one is by you. Yeah, I do think that is by me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bakuno Lieberman. This one is also by Kevin Putz. Um, Why am I in a Putz sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> just, just the luck of the draw, I guess. But here he's quoting Beethoven 7. Right. That's a piece called Inspiring Beethoven. Um, yeah, we also played, what did we play? We played a little bit from your um, variations on the theme of Mozart. We played a little mm-hmm. bit from your two piano sonata. Mm-hmm. The and, piccolo concerto. And the piccolo concerto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What All do the, I quote in the two piano sonata? Uh, there's a, just a little bit of T for two. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, right. Oh, yeah. you know what? Most people miss that, actually, which I find really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you what inspired you to do that? You don't do it all the time. You don't do it very often, but when you do, it's really explicit when you make these little quotes. Yeah, when, uh, when I do, it's just like a musical pun if I'm working with materials that have the same intervals or, or you know, or close to the quote, then I'll, I'll sometimes quote it as a pun. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, listening to it this morning, it really caught our ear. And, and it's something that, you know, people that are listening to it for the first time can sort of hang their, their ear on as they get used to the rest of the piece. Well, Van Gogh could hang his ear on it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's Elaine uh, that's Trudell's trombone, by the way. Okay. He's not actually playing it live in the studio. but Well, let's have a little conversation about commissioning. For people who don't know, how does it work with you, uh, Lieberman? Do you, Lee, Mr. Lieberman? <laughs> I was going to call you Lowell, and then I thought, well, I don't really know him well enough to call him Lowell. Can I call you Lowell? Is that okay? Oh, people call me all kinds of things. You can call me whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> I like was Lieberman. It? Yeah. yeah. It's like Cher. Makes me feel like a drill instructor or something. Right. <laughs> but, uh, so, yes, Lowell. Um, um, I'm so, how does well, it happen? Well, you know, the whole commissioning thing has kind of changed a bit since the advent of, of computers and emails and Facebook instant messenger, because it used to be that if somebody wanted to commission you, they, they would have to sometimes go through great lengths to find you and, and contact you. And now, um, I just avoided saying nowadays because I was worried that would make me sound too old. But <laughs> now, um, you know, people just send you a, a, a text or a Facebook message and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm in a tuba octet and we'd like to commission a piece from you. Um, so it's the, the process is pretty simple, actually. <laughs> um, and the commissioners are usually either performers or orchestras or, you know, um, usually performers. And, and even when it's an orchestra commissioning a piece, it's very often a single performer who's, you know, initiated a, a commission for a concerto. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that that's changed, um, and this is due to economic realities more than anything else, I think, is that um, we have a lot of these consortium commissions where more than one orchestra gets together to commission a piece from a composer. It, it used to be that orchestras were very protective of their commissions, that they would want to be the one orchestra doing, you know, the particular premiere and commission. Uh, but now, again, I think due to, to monetary concerns, uh, orchestras are banding together where each person just pays a little bit of the commission right. fee. And uh, this works actually to great advantage for everybody because the the composer gets more performances of the piece right off mm -hmm. the bat. Um, if it is a concerto, the, the soloist gets more performances. So it, the, these consortium things are great. Uh, a great thing, actually. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your cello concerto. You, you've written cello sonatas. You've used the cello in the past, but this is your first cello concerto, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I do have, I actually 
orchestrated my first cello sonata, which was one of the very first pieces I, I wrote when I was about oh. 17, I think. Okay. Uh, so that's a con- I orchestrated as a, that as a concertino mm-hmm. for cello and chamber orchestra. But oh, this that's is right, my, yeah. Yeah, this is my full, first full-fledged cello concerto. Can you yes. talk a, a little bit about how you hear the cello, its, uh, its expressive qualities as an, as an solo instrument? Well, it, it's always been one of my, my favorites uh, of the orchestral instruments. And at, uh, I remember in high school, I fell in love with the uh, Beethoven cello sonatas. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still remain uh, some of my favorite pieces in the entire literature. Um, and so cello was always an instrument I was attracted to. Uh, this was the first opportunity I had uh, to write a cello concerto because I do make my living as a composer, which means that uh, you know I need to write what people are going to commission. And so this is actually the first commission that's come up for a cello concerto. Yeah. Um, You think of some of the great string concertos of the past and how the composers worked with a particular soloist who was going to premiere it or perhaps was just, you know, working with them to make it more uh, violinistic or celloistic. Are you working at all with the soloist in this case who's going to premiere it? Well, I I did what I do... um with any uh, concerto or solo commission is I tell the performer, leave me alone until the piece is finished, <laughs> and then we'll get together and go through it and, you know, see if there are any changes or anything. Right. And that's exactly what I did with, with uh, uh, Julian. Julian. I, yeah. I, I wrote the piece. Uh, we went through it, of course. Uh, I am not a cellist or indeed a string player of any kind, so although I have a pretty good grasp on things like Boeing's, um, you know, my knowledge of that can't possibly match, you know, a, a professional soloist's knowledge of that. So uh, Julian was helpful going through Boeing's and, and, you know, suggesting a couple of little tweaks um, in terms of that. Uh, but it's, you know, there, I, I, I wouldn't say there were any major changes. I mean, because by the time I commit something down to paper, I have a pretty good idea that that's what I want. Yeah. Well, we have uh, Elaine Trudell here, who is a trombonist. Have you ever written a trombone concerto? No, I have not. <laughs> yet. That might be an, an interesting project. And yet, tuba octet. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, look, you could do an all-Lieberman program and the tuba leading into the trombone, an all-brass program, right? Zach, do you have anything you want to uh, check in with Lowell on while we have him on the phone? I'm thinking back to this conversation you were having with um, with Julian, and uh, you know, I, I think that there's this sense from the audience that there's a lot of discovery that needs to happen both on stage and in a concert hall whenever there's new music on the program. So I'm curious what the dialogue is when you first sat down or spoke with Julian on a telephone. Because I'm sure at some point there, there's a uh, unwritten respect that Julian has for the the new notes that he's probably getting to see before anybody else has. Um, but how much how much leeway is there to discuss 
the intention of the concerto, um, how much how much input does he really have in in suggesting any uh, interpretive changes beyond bowing and and and, and range of uh, performance. Well, I, I really think uh, any changes were of a very mundane nature in terms of Boeing and things like that. Okay. Uh, because, again, you know, by the time I put down on uh, something on paper, um, it, it doesn't leave a lot of leeway for, you know, you know revised interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an interesting thing because when when I remember when I was at Juilliard, I mean today we're living in an era where the general attitude of musicians is fidelity to the composer's intent, which means observing the markings that are on the page. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a student at Juilliard, especially among pianists, uh, and this is way back when in the you know late seventies, early eighties. A lot of the attitude then was that the notes are sacred, but everything else, the dynamics, the articulation, the expressive thing is kind of up for grabs, and that's the performer's interpretation. And as a composer, I actually feel that it's almost the exact opposite, that what you have as a composer is the kind of dynamic emotional framework first, and you're trying to find the notes to flesh that out as good as possible. So in a funny way, almost you could change the notes before you could change everything else. Interesting. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your your musical style or your musical aesthetic? Because when I, when I listen to your uh, music... It has this. It sounds very modern, yet it's it always is lyrical. Even when it's like you know big and bold and, and brassy or what have you, there's always this kind of like sense of discovery about it that I really enjoy, and I think that audiences will enjoy as mm-hmm. well. Do you, do you set out to write music that way, or is that just how it developed and blossomed for you? Well, I, I don't. I don't set out to write music in a certain way, and, and this is something I, I try and instill in, in my students, my, my composition students. I, I say, don't write the music that you think people expect of you, or don't write the music that you think will guarantee you a career. Mm-hmm. Write the music that you truly believe in, and, and the music you have to write. Um, I write music in the only way I know how to write. I mean, this is how it comes out every time when I write it. And the thing is, I've often been accused of being a neo-romantic, which is a a term I really hate because I think it's a vast oversimplification, and I think it's misunderstood. I think when people use the word romantic or neo-romantic in terms of music, they what they really mean often is tonal, and more often than that, what they really mean is melodic. Mm. And yes, my music is always melodic. I mean, I have um, always believed in that. Uh, but apart from that, it brings in a wide range of materials from, you know, tonality to atonality to octatonic things to all kinds of things. I basically use whatever materials in a piece... Um, I feel is right for the piece and that comes kind of organically out of the materials I'm working with. Yeah. Well, you described it much better than I could. 
<laughs> which is the way it should be. But uh, you listen to it and you can uh, you you are aware that there's a lot of stuff going on that the ear is perhaps unfamiliar with, but you're enjoying it nonetheless. It's kind of like being led to uh, you know eat sushi for the first time. You've in in your little apprehensive and you taste it and you think, oh, this is unusual, but you're enjoying it. At well, the same I, time. I hope I hope it's enjoyable on a certain <laughs> level. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I mean, listen, I mean, music, art, literature, whatever, it's all entertainment at the end of the day. Right. And I don't mean that, you know, it should appeal to the lowest common denominator. I mean, that's why this is art, you know, that it, it's hopefully a little more rarefied than some kind of mass market commercial thing. Right. But to me, any kind of art is a form of communication. And to me, it's the, the artist's duty that no matter what he, how complicated the thing he's communicating is, it's his job to communicate it as clearly as possible. Yeah. We've been speaking with uh, composer Lowell Lieberman, whose cello concerto has its premiere October 27th and 28th. And uh, are you coming out, Lowell, for the premiere? Oh, of course. Yeah, great. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing you, and I uh, want to thank you for spending some time this morning. Is there anything else you want to say to uh, our audience before we, we turn it over? Not, not really. I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm always asked to uh, explain my music or talk about the music before it's performed, and I usually have absolutely nothing to say because, I, <laughs> again, I, I believe that the piece should communicate on its own terms and should be kind yeah. of self-contained in that way. And I kind of feel like I don't really like program notes because I think it's like, you know, uh, giving away the ending of a movie before you watch it. Yeah. Maybe you should have the uh, pre-concert lecture after the concert instead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Post-concert lecture. Yeah. Lowell, is there is there a point in the concerto then, if not uh, anything programmatic is there a point that you're excited to hear? Is there a unique combination of instruments or something you're really proud of that, that you'll be sitting back with a smile on your face for? I'm just excited to hear the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's that, that's always an exciting moment for a composer. Um, you know, people ask me, are you ever surprised by what you hear at a first rehearsal or, or something? And, and, I say, well, no, because if I didn't know what it would sound like, I wouldn't have written it down. But still, it is there is that wonderful feeling of actually hearing the sounds in in real time and in real air. Yeah, you know. Should we uh, keep our ears peeled for any musical quotes from other no, composers? No, okay. there there are none. <laughs> at least, yeah. no intentional ones. Maybe a, is there a, um, a cadenza that the cellist can insert a few of his own? <laughs> no, no, there. Cadenza actually right at the beginning of the concerto. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and a couple of little mini cadenzas, but no, there is no no traditional uh, cadenza. I just felt like it, uh, that would be an interruption to uh, the whole form of the piece. I don't really like cadenzas very much, to be honest. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. When you write your trombone concerto, Elaine, <laughs> don't expect a cadenza. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Lowell, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, sure, here. it's a pleasure. And, uh, we look forward to having you here in Toledo in October. And I'm looking forward to being there, too. Thanks so okay, much. Okay, thank you. Thank hey, you. Well. Bye. W one comment I'd like to make. There's this moment where 
uh, a box arrived in the library at the symphony. And in that box was the score and the parts. And you think about this, you know, act of great effort and love that went into the writing of this concerto. And it's relegated to a FedEx flat rate shipping box, right? Yeah. There's something about this that when I looked at it, I scratched my head and I wondered, why did I expect anything else? You know, did I expect mm-hmm. a, you know, finely wrapped, uh, you know, w- with a bow and, and velvet coverings right. or something? <laughs> on, a, on a velvet pillow, come walking in with a trumpet <laughs> right. fanfare, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> indeed, except by cellos. Yeah. Um, but, but then when you open the box and you look at it and you see on the title page, Lieberman Cello Concerto, I was so excited. You know, there's a sense of the unknown and you flip through it and, and you can, you can look at some of the, the notes and you can think of what the melodies might sound like. Um, but you know, there's just this sense of untapped discovery that is yet to come. Yeah. And, and that was really exciting for me. I, I think I, I did a little dance in the library when I was handling the score for the first time. <laughs> One of the really amazing things about Lowell's music is that when you open it up, it actually has an opus number. And mm-hmm. I can't remember the last time I've seen a 21st century score with an opus number. And this, it happens to be opus 132. And I'm yeah. sure that you know, a late Beethoven string quartet did not right. necessarily inform the this particular cello <laughs> concerto, but there are certain opus numbers that for some reason just stick in my head as fairly yeah. sacred yeah. ones, and opus 132 yeah. happens to be one of them. The and, Beethoven string quartet. Yeah. yeah. It, it's funny that you mentioned that. I forgot the opus number, but I remember having the same Beethoven alignment. Yeah, it's there's an opus number on it on on a 21st century score. Alain, do you use you don't use op, opus numbers, do you? Mm, no, I don't. It's, I can't. Do, do, you, think, do you use Kershaw's? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I I can't think of a composer who uses opus numbers now. No, v- very often you just write the year. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right. Um, well, before we let it go, uh, if we have time for this, uh, Elaine, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the Shostakovich Tenth Symphony because that's also on the program. You're not conducting, obviously, but you have conducted this piece in the past. So maybe give us a little insight into that. Well, it is one of my favorite symphonies. It's, um, I think it's Shostakovich's greatest symphony. <clears throat> it comes right after the war. The Second World War, mm-hmm. um, and also if you if you bring yourself back to that era in the Soviet Union where Stalin uh, had um, had the decision making of um, life or death, uh, and you know of course a career or not. I mean, you know, if composer is dead, then, then you don't write so much music. But uh, <laughs> but but it was written. Uh, it came out the year after he, the year Stalin died. Yeah. And, um, when, and, and one funny, well, not funny, that curious thing that happened is that Prokofiev died the same day, right? right. As uh, Stalin. And Stalin was all over the, you know, the Pravda, the, and Prokofiev was in page, I don't know, you know, 17 or 27 or something. But, uh, the, the real creators, they, they live on after that. And Shostakovich was, this piece is, uh, by a sense of proportion, might sound a little bit bizarre. It's so a first movement that's like 25, 27 minutes long. Second movement is four, four minutes long. Yeah. A- and then you go into some kind of, you know, valse like, and then you have a finale. <laughs> now the, what's interesting, really interesting about this piece is that that second movement is actually a portrait of Stalin. So it is of uh, immense uh, violence, but it's very short. Yeah. But it, it's uh, and and during that uh, 
that portrait, you hear the beginning of something that goes, Ré, Mi, Do, Si. And of course, there are the initial of the SCH in German notes, which is Dmitri Shostakovich. It's the first symphonic piece that, that he put his initials on. It's like if you feel that now I can live again, the dictator is dead, oh, and yeah. we can start living again, and we can start owning who we are. There's one more little, so, and, and also the symphony finish, finishes like that. Pa, 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 pa. It repeats, it repeats. It's like a little assertion of self saying, yes, you know, I, now, now we can live in the open. It was very, very, you know, very dramatic for all those, those composers, creators. We, you know, you couldn't have a, like a Lieberman on the phone talking about his music, right. you know? Right. You right. know, you, they, they basically were almost closet composer for the real music. And the music that was like more fanfare and uh, celebrating the regime, that you could play. Now, there's one more secret in it that not so many people know is that in the third moment of this piece, uh, all of a sudden the horn plays something you don't hear before, you don't hear after, not in the same tonality. It's just very bizarre. It goes, mi, la, mi, re, la, just this, and then again and again, and it has nothing to do with what you heard for the first, you know, half hour. And it never comes again after. It just plays a few times in that third moment. And, and Shostakovich was very, of course, well known for his code and right. musical code, of course, to survive in the Stalin Soviet Union. But it, it was also in his private life. Like this Mila Mirela is, sorry, they're French. No, but if, <laughs> if you, if you take the notes and you find the, decipher the note, it's the name El Mira. And he was secretly in love with one of his students. Uh, and uh, it, it's, um, how do you say in English? Unrequited? Unrequited. Unfortunately for him. But uh, Think of all the music we wouldn't have without unrequited love. <laughs> exactly. Right? But this is something you wanted to keep for him. But in this, you you hear E. And, then, and so in German, it's also uh, E. Mi, E, E. And then La, just the L, Mi. The, the, the note E, but in French, Re also, and A in German, El, El Mira. Yeah. So it was a, a way to, to hide that. As you hear, like, for example, in Berg Lyric Suite, is the same. But uh, what's interesting is that, is that at the end of the movement, you have moving further and further away the El Mira with the horn and the pum, 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 which is Shostakovich. And they start kind of close uh. and they move away and move away and move away. So it's kind of a, a part, a, a slice of, a, of his life story mm. there that you have. It's very autobiographical. Interesting. This music. So when we listen to it, yes, the, the music is important. But as Lieberman said, you could change the note, but the intention is, you know, is what's important. So in right. this music, if you can listen as much to the intention and to the, the yes, suffering in that first moment you hear, but finally a glimpse of liberty, ever so short yeah. it was. Yeah. Well, we could have made this a two-part episode today because we have so many things to talk about in this area. And uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll pick it up again sometime in the future. But that's about all the time that we have today. I, I want to thank uh, my regular guests, uh, Zach Vasser and Merwin Sue, and also Thanks to the Toledo Symphony's new music director, Elaine Trudell, for joining us today. We look forward to having you back again. Toledo Symphony Lab is generously underwritten by a gift from the estate of Barbara Garwood and is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony. You can download episodes of this program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org. Don't forget the concert featuring the uh, Lowell Lieberman Cello Concertos, the world premiere. That's happening 
A week from this weekend, it's October 27th and 28th at 8 o'clock p.m. at the Toledo Museum of Art Peristyle. Also on the program, Shostakovich Symphony No. 10. And uh, you can pick up your tickets at uh, toledosymphony.com or you can call the box office. And that phone number is 419-246-8000. Remember, you can also check out all the upcoming events of the symphony by visiting their website at toledosymphony.com and through their various social media outlets, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab here on your public radio station, FM 91.